This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Lisa, we have an awesome episode today. We're interviewing uh, Emily Lamb and Anthony Morgan on the Sentencing and Parole Project. We've got Sharif Foda on uh, a segment that we call, How'd You Do That? regarding 278 uh, applications uh, before trial. Uh, and uh, you and I are gonna blabber on about various issues, uh, I think in between, and so we hope you like it. We are very pleased to announce our second ever recipients of the Lounge Star of the Month Award, Faisal Mirza, Anthony Morgan, and Emily Lamb for their extraordinary work on the Sentencing and Parole Project. I want to give you a little bit of background on our amazing colleagues. We're going to be joined today by two of the three co-founders of the Sentencing and Parole Project, Emily Lamb and Anthony Morgan. Emily is a partner at Kastner Lamb. She is an experienced trial and appeals lawyer and has been one of the major leaders in pushing for greater acknowledgement of systemic racism in the justice system. Emily was counsel with Faisal Mirza in the Jackson decision, which to our knowledge is the first ever decision in Ontario in which an impact of race and cultural assessment was admitted on sentencing and led to a fantastic decision by Justice Nakatsuru. Emily was also counsel in the Lee decision at the Supreme Court of Canada that explored the impact of race on reasonable expectations of privacy and also yielded a fantastic decision. Anthony, who's also joining us today, is the current manager of the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. Anthony has been a leader on issues of anti-black racism in the justice system for a number of years now and has worked with Faisal on research into the impact of race in criminal justice, as he will tell you in the interview, uh, since basically his first day is being called to the bar. We're very glad to be joined by Emily and Anthony today. And Faisal is uh, not here with us today, but he is uh, acknowledged uh, as a recipient of the Lounge Star of the Month Award. Uh, he is well known for his work with Emily on Jackson. He's also counsel on the Morris matter, which will be heard by the Court of Appeal, uh, we believe in the fall or perhaps the winter. It is also a tour de force decision by Justice Nakatsuru dealing with the issues that we're grappling with today on the podcast. And all three of them, Faisal, Anthony, and Emily, are uh, co-directors of the Sentencing and Parole Project, which you will hear about today uh, was officially launched in the last few weeks. And they're gonna tell you about, about this uh, extraordinary project. Yeah, and, and Emily and Anthony are, are far too humble and focused on the work to talk about the money side of this too much, but we'll do it for them. Um, as you'll hear in the interview, the Sentencing and Parole Project currently has funding for a year, but they will be dependent unless you know, magical grant money comes in on generous donations to keep their good work going beyond this year. So we encourage all of our listeners to go to their website, which is sentencingproject.ca. And there's a big button that says donate, or you can just go straight to sentencingproject.ca slash donate. And you can make a donation to make sure that this work keeps going into the future. 
so without any further ado, um, now for the interview. So uh, Anthony and Emily, let's start with this. Can you walk us through the origin story for the sentencing and, and parole project? Whose brainchild was it? How did you get it off the ground? Tell us uh, how lightning struck. Well, um, I'll start. I, I think it was a bit sort of coincidental and collaborative. Um, Faisal Mirza, uh, who is our other co-director and co-founder, and Anthony had previously worked together at the African Canadian Legal Clinic and had done years of work in sort of the racial justice um, arena. And then Faisal and I met um, when I was retained by Jamal Jackson um, to represent him in his criminal proceedings. I asked Faisal to join me knowing about um, the work that Anthony and Faisal had done. And I asked him to join me in bringing forward this issue of um, racism and anti-Black racism specifically in sentencing uh, through the use of um, impact of race and culture assessments, which had originated in the East Coast um, by two social workers, uh, Lana McLean and Robert Wright. I was sort of fortunate enough to have the support of Legal Aid to run this as a test case and to try to bring um, the use of these social history reports to Ontario. And so kudos to Legal Aid, they saw the value in this um, and allowed us to bring Dr. Wright to Toronto to complete an assessment for Mr. Jackson and then um, allow us to use it uh, in Mr. Jackson's sentencing proceedings. So as a result of that first case um, and the, I would say pretty positive response, uh, positive decision on um, acknowledging racism in sentencing, we decided that we wanted to pursue um, the expansion and use of these reports in the criminal justice system. And so the three of us uh, discussed how best to do that, uh, given some of the constraints. Um, you know, at the time when we decided to expand the project, there were cuts to legal aid. Uh, there appeared to be at least a reluctance to funding um, something that would be sort of large scale were readily available for anyone who wanted um, a type of report. And that's not to criticize legal aid. That's to, to talk about the actual reality of, of, of those reports. They, they, they are resource heavy. They take um, a lot of hours. They're very different from your regular pre-sentence report. Um, and so the three of us talked about um, looking at different avenues where we could try to get this project up and running. And the Law Foundation happened uh, to come across um, our table and we, we looked at some of the grants that were available and decided to try. And luckily uh, we, got, we got one of the grants, um, the responsive grant, which has enabled us to make available these reports to um, people who need them in Ontario for one year. 
And so the funding right now is, is, is for the year and we're hoping to find a way to make this long-term and sustainable. So beyond the, the one year. And what just, we have so many questions for you, Emily and Anthony, Go but it. It, in terms of the bricks and mortar of the project, the three of you are, are incredibly experienced and learned directors. Um, are, are the three of you running the day-to-day -day project? Did you have to hire um, social worker staff? What, what does it look like uh, in, in terms of, uh, of the work and the manpower? I, ugly? <laughs> <laughs> the first word that came to mind is ugly. Um, it, and I'll let Anthony jump in. It's intense, all three of us. So there is, we, we have not hired anyone full-time um, or actually even part-time to help us. The three of us have been working at this, I'd say for a few years. Um, we have been supports, pro bono supports for other lawyers who have advanced these issues. Um, and we are happy to do it. I, I want to make that clear. Um, it is important, I think, for the criminal defense bar to recognize that we as defense counsel um, sometimes aren't well equipped to talk about issues involving race um, and bringing them forward in, in, in the criminal justice system. So in terms of the nuts and bolts, um, you know, the three of us do everything. Uh, even now uh, we do have, and I do want to acknowledge the fact that we do have students um, OSGA has funded two public interest internships, and so we have two students um, helping us right now. But prior to this point in time, we were assisting in terms of linking and finding social workers to assist in the preparation and assessments um, that are being conducted by the Sentencing and Parole Project. Uh, we assist in the training and understanding of the criminal justice system and um, issues that have to be canvassed in these reports. Um, compiling collateral uh, sources. So if the person has family members, friends, um, school reports, we try to help in the collection of all of that information that will eventually make its way into the reports. Inquiries from the media, the three of us, I think, try to try to deal with. So really what it is, is a full-time job on top of another full-time job. The three of us are all employed full-time. The three of us are all parents. Um, and the three of us all do, I would say, at least one other um, significant uh, extracurricular activity um, in other organizations. So do you think that's fair, Anthony? It's, yeah, I think that's fair. I, I constantly in touch. Yeah, we are uh, on one thing or another. In, in terms of uh, what I like to provide and, and where our team um, tends to to come to me most or the contribution I offer is largely around uh, being able to uh, speak to the ways in which the criminal justice system at different points of intersection has disproportionately impacted black communities leading to overrepresentation of black people within the criminal justice oh. system and 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 grabbing the evidence and the information that speaks to the conditions that create that overrepresentation so uh, socioeconomic marginalization in the areas of employment, education, housing, healthcare, and of course uh, interactions with with police would be carding, racial profiling, and over incarceration more generally. Because of the work that I've been fortunate to do over the last number of years, I've uh, been able to keep an eye on 
reports as they come out from different government bodies and also from universities. And so to enhance the, uh, the enhanced pre-sentencing reports to ensure that we have the most relevant up-to-date information uh, is, is the contribution that I, I uh, have the most fun offering to tell you the truth and, and supporting the training piece as well. Because there's a way in which we see, I think many people have increasingly an intuitive sense that there's, there is a, a kind of injustice that's happening, but people aren't always, it, it's, it's very difficult, difficult to language and we're not trained uh, as lawyers often well enough, I would say, to be able to speak to those things. And so when you get social workers who are then required to uh, support the development of these, these reports, they have a particular perspective. But uh, while that's incredibly useful, being able to translate that in a way that is receptive within the, the uh, within criminal proceedings is, is another uh, kind of uh, leap or, or a step that needs to, to happen. And so we, myself, Emily and Faisal are, are often working on that. And, and I, I try to help be that, that bridge between the folks with the more social work perspective and the uh, criminal practitioners. Right. I, just to step back for a second, um, I know that, I mean, those of us in Toronto, where all of us are, are right now, um, are familiar with you know, impact of race and cultural assessments because of the Morris and Jackson cases going to the Court of Appeal. Uh, you describe your reports as enhanced pre-sentence reports. For people who are from jurisdictions who may not be as familiar with what we're actually talking about here, can you explain what is an impact of uh, race and cultural assessment? What is an enhanced pre-sentence report? And, and are they the same thing? Anthony, do you, oh, I, I'm happy you to take that. Um, so an enhanced pre-sentence report um, is the same thing, I think, in, in essence, as um, what has been referred to as an impact of race and culture assessment. Uh, that is the terminology um, that was developed by Dr. Wright. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we didn't want to wholesale adopt that without some acknowledgement that, um, you know, that was what he had developed for uh, the East Coast and use in, in those courts. They've also been referred to as um, social history reports. And I would say that the content of the reports are essentially the same. Usually it's a very detailed um, a very detailed uh, history of the defendant, um, which includes, you know, where they were born, um, the family unit, um, significant relationships, both parental and otherwise, uh, what they're doing now, whether they have children, um, issues, um, and uh, the impact of some of the structural and systemic racism experienced by the defendant. Uh, if there is a prior criminal history, um, there usually is uh, some acknowledgement of that history. And in addition to that, there usually is something about um, what some of the reasons that resulted or impacted the defendant in um, being before the courts on this occasion. So for instance, their participation in, I'm gonna use an example, drug trafficking, uh, why they may have turned to trafficking drugs, um, and, and sort of gives you some insight into uh, the reason why they, they, they are before the courts. In addition to that, um, there usually is a section on, um, I would say theory or understanding systemic and structural racism. And so the social workers are usually trained in anti-Black racism 
and we'll provide um, references uh, to contextualize a person's um, life history so that the reader, often a judge, also crowns, defense counsel, can understand and situate their history um, in, uh, within an anti-Black racism, under, with an anti-Black racism understanding and perspective. Hopefully, that's the hope. Um, in addition to that, uh, the other piece that we that are that's usually included is recommendations. So recommendations for um, organizations that may provide uh, supports that can assist with rehabilitation. So it's I would say very comprehensive um, in terms of all, all the all the uh, issues um, that are covered and provides a very thorough um, review of a person's background um, and how they see themselves and where they see themselves on the path to rehabilitation. So I think that you know, should assist a judge in understanding that particular offender's needs and addressing them with hopefully culturally appropriate programming. Anthony, you, you're, I mean, you're a community leader on issues of anti-Black racism uh, in a variety of different spheres. You've been very public and, and I think I've done a lot of fantastic work, including uh, now with the city of Toronto. What, what motivated you to get involved in this particular project, um, you know, as opposed to the other things that you take on? <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking. So there are a number of factors. So uh, as Emily had mentioned, back in uh, 2014 is when uh, I worked uh, first with, with Faisal Mirza on uh, the NUR decision, RV NUR that had gone, um, it was a mandatory minimum uh, case. And, and from that time, so from the summer 2014, we've been having conversations about how to create the kind of arguments that would be uh, most receptive to the bench uh, to appreciate the fuller context that Black communities are, are coming from so that we're not hyper-criminalized and that the over-representation doesn't continue. And so the motivation was intellectually, it was, it was interesting. And I also had this formative experience. 2014, I was, uh, I was a one-year call. <laughs> so this, is, this was being able to have these kinds of conversations that early in my career really formed my thinking about how to create uh, interventions that could lead to systemic reform and, and those conversations with Faisal just continued over the years and uh, eventually crystallized into what we have now as the project so it, just the, the timing was was great also Faisal was a, an amazing mentor because I was so young uh, helping me really get my feet in the profession was helpful and so wanting to continue to learn from him uh, and, and explore ways to become an effective advocate to address uh, systemic uh, anti-black racism and systemic racism more generally was a big part of it but also there's there's a personal element I have a, a younger brother who has been in and out of the justice system for uh, a number of years and he's currently serving uh, uh, federal time uh, in Ontario in a medium security uh, facility and so seeing what my brother had gone through um, and experiencing what my family has gone through to support him and knowing what my brother actually needs versus what he's actually getting and the ways in which he's being read and responded to by the system um, has been uh, extraordinarily frustrating, heartbreaking, um, and, and yes, also angering. And so 
uh, there's there's different things that I could do with that energy. And one of the things I thought that would be healthy and constructive is is uh, build on the the kind of advocacy I've I've already had the opportunity to do, but then look for a specific project or or be ready to support a project. And thankfully, this this the the sentencing and parole project has ended up uh, being that. And so regularly, I think about well, what kind of supports would my brother have gotten? Would he have been in and out as much uh, if he had gotten these these early interventions if a her uh, enhanced pre-sentencing report was prepared for him? And I think Anthony, if you could connect for our listeners, because I think a lot of criminal lawyers do. And, and I, I'm as guilty as anyone to fall into this trap of, you know, solving one guy's problem and then moving on to the next guy's problem and just really kind of treating your practice as a series of guys coming in and out of your door. And I think what's genius about the project and, and the way the two of you've been practicing for years now is you've connected these, the individual outcomes to these broader systemic questions and your website's explicit it says that you're you know part of what you're trying to do is is tackle the overrepresentation problem can you speak a little bit to that problem and how the project is got that problem in its crosshairs can you connect those for for the stupid criminal lawyers in our audience yeah. like me who are are really kind of just dealing with one guy at a time sure i, I think it's a matter of, of just recognizing and honoring the fact that everybody comes from a context and context is key so what you're seeing manifest in an individual is rarely just the product of that individual's choices we might think it is and we use that language a lot but what shapes choices are the conditions within which you're given those choices so um, for instance by way of of uh, analogy all analogies are imperfect but um, say a person regularly picks bear with me burgers like, why is this person always picking burgers? And you realize that it's because they're in a hamburger restaurant. The concept, it's not that they have this particular affinity for this thing. It's just, oh, that's what the menu is offering. So you really have to be able to take a step back and say, okay, this person is making these choices about getting involved in these things. Well, what, what's around them? What does their housing situation look like? What was their family dynamic? What was their experience in school? What, what happened in their, in their community? Were they exposed to different kinds of trauma? Did they see someone get robbed, swarmed, shot, killed, someone close to them that could have profoundly impacted their psychosocial development and lead them into uh, making some of the negative choices that, that they ended up making at some point in their life? And so what, the, what we try to do with, with uh, our reports, and I think we've uh, been able to do with uh, a good amount of success so far that we wanna build on, is, is make those particular connections so that we move away from uh, what there tends to be is a, a criminalization of Black people, a presumption that Black people have something that makes them uh, inclined towards or making uh, these decisions towards criminality, or uh, we have these stereotypes about Black violence and aggression that are easy to set in when we don't consider those social factors that make it actually more viable in some instances, in some really sad, many sad instances, to be aggressive and violent as a mode of survival because the conditions that you've been left in within your community. Yeah. So on a practical level, um, you know, for defense lawyers out there who are thinking, okay, what you're doing sounds fantastic. Like how do they, how do we reach out to you guys? What, what practically um, can our members or our members lost my brain today, but what can we defense lawyer people you know, to work with you guys to get better results for our client using these enhanced pre-sentence reports and other things that you guys are doing? 
So the practical, the practical part is actually the easiest part. Um, all you got to do is go to the website. Uh, if you, you, you fill out a form um, and you should expect a response with a formal intake form requesting sort of name of defense lawyer, name of defendant, and uh, also lists sort of the collaterals that we need in terms of how do we contact their family, uh, what court is this before, when is the next court date. So it's a pretty comprehensive intake form. And basically, the process doesn't start until that intake form is submitted, and we respond by saying, we've received the form, you're on the list. And what we'll try to do is prioritize based on the information that we've received. Obviously, some cases um, are a little more urgent than other cases, especially if we have, say, somebody in custody in a time-served position, we're going to have to prioritize that person. Um, and so really it's, it, 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 and we'll let you know sort of when we expect um, to have those reports done. In the beginning stages, in other words, right now, um, we'd ask that our fellow uh, lawyers at the Defense Bar bear with us. We are trying to get things up and running. Um, opening at the same time as COVID has obviously been a challenge. We can't get social workers inside the jails. Yeah. And so, Bear with us, we can, we're, we're pretty responsive and we can give you an idea in terms of our best guess, but um, once everything is up and running and uh, the system is working, uh, hopefully it'll be a lot easier. That's great. Uh, and you also mentioned that you have the Law Foundation grant that is supporting this project for a year, I believe you said. Mm -hmm. um, obviously this is not an issue that gets solved in one year, so I assume that you guys need funding to be able to keep doing the good work that you're doing. Uh, is there any way that people can support the project? For sure. Donations are always um, accepted and, and we're very, very thankful and grateful for any donation. Um, lobbying um, MPs, MPs in terms of the need for such a project actually helps a lot. It would be um, good if the government uh, fully appreciated um, the value that we bring um, and the change that we can hopefully um, hopefully make uh, with, with the project. That's great. And in terms of donating, um, as far as I can tell, the best place to do that is to go to sentencingproject.ca slash donate. Um, so your website is at sentencingproject.ca and people can get all the information and the forms they need there, but sentencingproject slash .ca slash donate is where they can actually donate money to support the project. That's right. We hope, yeah. Welcome, hope everybody all will. <laughs> no, it, it's such good work and we're so happy to have you guys on today and truly we hope that everybody listening uh, reaches out, maybe not all at once for your sanity, uh, <laughs> and, and donates to make it such that you can keep doing this good work for as long as possible. So thank you guys so much for everything that you have done and continue to do. It's the winner of the 2020 Hugh Lawford Award for Excellence in Legal Publishing. LGBTQ 2 plus law, practice issues and analysis, the first text of its kind, draws on the expertise and experience of a diverse author team. The text provides practitioners with a deep understanding of how their clients' identities affect their interactions with the Canadian legal landscape. General editor, Joanna Radboard, a pioneer in advancing LGBTQ2 rights in Canada, assembles a remarkable team of over 50 expert contributors, consisting of lawyers, academics, and activists. 
A particular focus is put on the challenges faced within criminal law, and the text also addresses the experiences of Indigenous and racialized members of the LGBTQ2 community. Learn more and order your copy at emond.ca slash LLP LGBTQ. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emond.ca slash LLP LGBTQ and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. So Lisa, one of the things that Emily was reflecting on um, it has been something that I've been thinking about for a long time now, but especially in the last few weeks. Um, and that, that relates to Emily's experience of racism and exclusion in the legal profession. And, uh, and I have been kind of reflecting quite a bit on our podcast and the, the role of our podcast in the broader legal community. And in particular, I've been thinking about the name that we chose uh, for our podcast. We chose the name The Lawyer's Lounge, and, and I've told the story, we've told the story, about our fight to, to maintain that, that name um, and the reasons for it. And, you know, you and I, maybe some would call us the Betty and Veronica of the Canadian criminal law bar, uh, feel like quite an attachment, quite an emotional attachment to the lawyer's lounge because it's a place where we feel at home and where we feel comfortable to commune with our colleagues. And, you know, I've been thinking quite a bit about how that has not been the the universal experience for our bar and that indeed lawyer's lounges uh, across the country have have also historically been a place of exclusion and um, and a place where, um, you know, in the GTA where lawyers have been carted <laughs> um, because of their difference, because of how far afield from the idealized image of the portly white male barrister um, that we all, we all hold. And I've been thinking a lot about how I've given myself a pass on on these issues, um, and I and I don't think I'm alone. Uh-huh. And you know, I think you and I share like a similar um, socioeconomic background that makes us feel makes me feel like I am a scrappy outsider. You know, I'm a woman. I'm a first-generation lawyer, um, and so I feel, and I go to court every day, and I fight the man, right? Like, I fight the good fight against yeah. um, the state, and so uh, I I think have given myself a yearly report card of A+, plus on systemic racism because of those factors, you know? I feel like I'm fighting in a, a profession that um, that, you know, doesn't necessarily want to see me at the top and, uh, and I'm fighting for racialized clients on a day-to-day basis. But like what strikes me so hard right now in June of 2020 is how much more I could be doing, should be doing, and how amazing Faisal, Anthony, and Emily are for, for, you know, fighting 
the fight you and I fight every day, but harder, <laughs> like a higher degree of difficulty, and also taking on these broad systemic issues uh, as as their labor, as their responsibility. And yeah. I, I, you know, I'm just, you know, just want to be a bit tougher on myself on these issues. I don't know if you've been feeling similarly. Yeah, no, I, I think this is a conversation that a lot of us have had because I think you're entirely right, which is that there's a degree to which it's easy as a criminal defense lawyer to think that you're doing your bit. You know, you're, you're pushing back, you're representing the interests, you're telling the stories. Talk about ourselves as storytellers. You know, we're telling the stories of people who don't have voices sometimes and, 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 and saying it's very unfair and it's wrong that we don't listen to people who are charged with offenses or in particular people from racialized community or Aboriginal people charged with offenses and that, you know, we, we can get on our soapbox and we can speak for them. But, you know, it is still, I think, a really problematic reality in many courts across the country that you end up having a white judge, a white crown, a white defense lawyer, and a racialized accused person and all of these people that have no insight into the lived experience of the person whose life is on the line are making decisions for them or speaking for them and and inherently in doing that are, are not able to understand or capture the real lived experience of that person. And also it's really fucked up that, you know, my racialized client story only gets listened to because it comes out of the mouth of a privileged person privileged both because I, you know, I get to wear the hat of lawyer. And also, I think it would be stupid not to recognize that tied up in the notion of privilege of a lawyer is also the privilege of being a white person. And, and that story gets listened to because, you know, I get up there and say that. And I think there's a, a bit of a, there's not a bit of, I think there's quite a bit of sort of white savior complex that finds its way into the criminal defense bar, uh, because people think, you know, I'm, I'm doing this great thing. And I, I do think, being a defense lawyer is a really important social role, and I don't want to discount the important work that, that our colleagues do, but I, I do think we need to take a more critical look at it. Because it, it does, it is so indicative of how deeply racist the system is that we don't listen to people and we don't give them a voice at so many stages in their lives. I mean, Emily, I think, observed, or, or Anthony, that you know, sometimes when people get these impact of race and cultural assessments done, it's the first time that anybody has asked them to, to consider their own background. It's the first time that their background gets committed to a written document and discussed. And, you, you know, it would be amazing to think, and I think it was Anthony who talked about his brother, but, you know, how different would someone's trajectory have been if someone had taken a step back, you know, before the first criminal allegation or at that time, and ask these same questions. What systemic issues are impacting your trajectory? What resources are you not getting? How have you been impacted by a very racist system? And it's just, it's so disappointing that these questions don't get asked at that process. And it only ends up being when you get, when you face serious charges, the people start thinking, okay, well, you know, let's look back on your life and how you got here. So I think that we don't do a good enough job of, of digging into these issues at a preventative stage and and frankly even at an early stage in the justice system and and that a lot of defense lawyers don't do a good enough job and i i put myself in this category to a large extent don't do a good enough job of getting a proper 
social and cultural history of their clients and understanding the circumstances that, that inform who they are. Um, I, I think that people in the justice system end up facing so many different layers of discrimination. I mean, one, you know, we're talking about race a lot, and, and that's a very important one. But there are also things that are potentially tied up in race, but not necessarily, you know, language skills, uh, education level, uh, class issues, all of these things end up stacking up against somebody. Add on to that, you know, despite the presumption of innocence, I think we all know that there is a great deal of stigma attached to being charged with offenses. And the person that you're representing in the courtroom has so much stacked against them right at the outset. And we, I think we do need to do more to understand everything about that client and to push for a better understanding of where they're coming from and to push back against a system that just criminalizes so many innate features of, of who that person is without understanding that they are, in many ways, that we have pushed them into these roles. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm also doing a lot of reflecting on these issues because I, I think I think we need to take a more systemic approach. And I, I'm, that's why I, I was so excited when I saw the work that Emily and Faisal and Anthony are doing because I, I do think these issues will not be solved on a case-by-case -case basis. You shouldn't take the individual out of the equation, of course, but we as a bar and we as a system, and this is not just for defense lawyers. I mean, I think if there are crowns or judges that listen to this podcast, I mean, this is very much for you too. Because I, I think the system can dehumanize people and, and not all crowns, don't get me wrong, but you know, a lot of, a lot of crowns I think also are very guilty of letting bias and, and discrimination impact the way that they perceive somebody and them not taking the time to understand someone's background. So still do it on a case by case basis, but we're never going to fix these issues and we're not going to unpack them and account for them unless we take a systemic or a system wide approach, whether it be through legislation, different approaches in the system and a better understanding on the part of all participants. So I think we all have a major role to play in that in unpacking the racism that, that I think everyone is infected by in their personal and professional lives, but we have a particular professional obligation to look internally and to think about how these biases are impacting how we do our jobs and, and to be very aggressively anti-racist. I, I do think that that's, that's a professional competency at this point, and if you're not doing it, you're not doing your job properly. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and like I, I and I, I feel like it's maybe time to be even more radical in our thinking on these issues. And I don't have any answers yet, but the thing that keeps striking me is if we all acknowledge that overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous pe people in our prisons is a tangible outcome of a racist society and a racist system, then then to what degree is our participation in the system complicity? And that's what's really bothering me, is that as defense counsel, we act on these matters for individual accused and we lend the system legitimacy by our mere presence. And you know, year after year, decade after decade, this problem persists and it's not getting any better. And it may be time for dramatic and radical action on the part of our bar and judges and crowns because we are the system. The system is made up of individual actors operating in their lane. And the problem is, though our system is a model internationally and there are, there's much to 
commend it. This is a, a tragic result, a tragic outcome for these two communities in particular. And I guess my question is, how much longer are we going to stand for it? Yeah. And I think particularly, you know, you and me and, and a majority, as it still is, of our colleagues who are, who are white and who have lived lives of substantial privilege. And I think you can't deny that there is such a significant privilege in being a person whose skin color allows you to opt into these conversations and opt back out again when you want to, as opposed to having this be your life and your lived experience. We need to do this work very much ourselves. I, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the people that lead the charge on confronting systemic racism in our profession and more broadly are people of color. Um, and I, I think that white people in the bar need to do a much better job of taking up the call that, that you put out and of, of taking these issues seriously and of fighting this fight. Um, because I, I do think it's far too easy to, again, having this conversation now, obviously, I always feel like, well, you know, of course we're having this conversation now, but why weren't we having it when we started the podcast in February? You know, why, yeah. you yeah. know, it, it's, it's, you know, these are issues that we as white people can, people tune into and they get very fired up about them at a point in time and then they drop off. And I think that, it, you know, we need to make sure that we continue uh, the push against systemic racism in policing, in the justice system, all the time, because that is, again, that's a core competency of our job, and it, it's very important that, that white defense lawyers, white, white crowns, take up uh, this cause and, and make it an integral part of doing our jobs, and not just talk about it because it's getting a lot of press right now. Yeah, well, you and I are going to come back to this. Um, again and again, I hope. And, um, and I look forward to, to exploring calls to action um, and, and ideas and projects. And, and, um, and I, I, this is a conversation that needs to continue. Thank I you. Agree. The next segment we're going to do is uh, how'd you do that? The focus of this segment is on people using the law in novel ways to achieve great results or push for change. We're very happy to welcome Sharif Foda as our guest today. Sharif, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. All right. For those who don't know Sharif, he is an accomplished criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, former Supreme Court of Canada clerk, now a sole practitioner. Sharif is known for taking on tough cases, especially where there is alleged state misconduct. And Sharif is becoming a burgeoning expert in search and seizure matters, including complex garifolies and other wildly confusing procedural mechanisms. You recently brought a motion for directions in a serious sexual assault case before Justice Davis of the Superior Court in Toronto. As I understand it, you were seeking to cross-examine the complainant using Facebook messages she exchanged with your client, and you didn't want to disclose these to the Crown in advance of trial. So tell us, how did this case come to you, and, and how did you think about it? So... Um... First of all, thanks for that introduction. I don't know if uh, if I am specialized in cases where I find uh, state misconduct. Uh, I just seem to see state misconduct everywhere I go. Everywhere you go. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, in this in this case, actually, this this case uh, was referred to me because I actually represented prior counsel on this case. Uh, well, assisted prior counsel in representing the client uh, on a conflict motion. Uh, what happened was. 
uh, counsel for the defendant in this case uh, had was uh, basically mid-trial, uh, was about to start the trial. He had, they had started pretrial motions on this case, and uh, it turned out that one of the witnesses in this case had been uh, represented in the past by one of his law partners, mm-hmm. and um, the crown on the case uh, decided that you know that witness should have uh, his own counsel. Uh, and the conflict matter ended up uh, blowing up to the point where we were having a full-blown hearing with Viva Voce evidence um, and several days in court scheduled. Uh, and it was, uh, it was hard fought. In the middle of the conflict hearing, uh, it was uh, decided that, you know what, um, counsel would just voluntarily uh, remove himself from the record and the client would have me represent him. So I got on the case, and this was in the spring of 2019, and uh, I didn't have availability to continue the trial, obviously immediately, I wasn't familiar with the file. So we adjourned the trial, uh, and then it was pushed uh, back to the fall of 2019. Mm -hmm. And what happened in the intervening period was, uh, first of all, a number of decisions from the Supreme Court came out uh, that touched the law of sexual assault. There had already been a Section 276 application that was brought, but there was also the legislation uh, that was passed by Parliament, the so-called Gomeshi provisions. Mm-hmm. Um, those provisions uh, obviously changed uh, the way we uh, we have to approach sexual assault cases. And by the time I was gearing up for trial, I realized that the legal matrix... Uh, around uh, this case had changed, uh, and it had uh, it was different from what I uh, how I had anticipated running uh, the trial. I had in my possession the you know the prior counsel's file. Prior counsel obviously never turned uh, his mind to this idea that he would have to bring a motion to cross-examine the complainant using uh, to with Facebook messages. So. Uh, in prepping for trial, I realized I needed to figure out exactly what I had to do uh, to make sure that I, I didn't cause a mistrial or anything. Uh, there weren't many cases on point on this issue of whether or not I could use these Facebook messages, whether or not they uh, they contained a reasonable expectation of privacy with respect to the complainant in them. And that's really the question, right? The question now is, do you have any so-called records, records as defined by Section 278.1 of the Criminal Code. And, you know, the typical kind of records that we consider to have expectations of privacy in them with respect to the complainant are things like, you know, uh, doctor's records, psychiatric records, therapist notes, uh, journal entries, and things like that. But the section doesn't actually specifically say that uh, private communications, uh, instant messaging communications, text messages, Facebook messages, or otherwise, have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And so I looked into the case law. Uh, there was some. There were some cases out of other jurisdictions that said yes, these kind of messages do attract a reasonable expectation of privacy. And the consequence of that would be that if I were to run this trial in front of a jury and not bring the motion in advance that. Uh, would uh, that I would have to bring in order to use it, then I could cause a mistrial. And why, sorry, why why does the reasonable expectation of privacy matter? Is that part of the definition of a record? Yes, yes. Okay. So uh, a record, by definition, is something that has a reasonable expectation of um, 
privacy in it. It's defined as any form of record that contains personal information for which there's a reasonable expectation of privacy and includes medical, psychiatric, therapeutic, counseling, education, employment, child welfare, adoption, and social services records, et cetera, right? So the question was really, does do these messages contain a reasonable expectation of privacy? And if I can just break, the, break that down, if they do, then you've got to ask your judge for permission to use them in crossing the complainant. And if, on the contrary, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in them, you don't need to ask permission, and you can surprise the complainant in cross-examination with those records, right? Exactly. Well, they wouldn't be defined as records with those messages. Right. And, um, and not only do you have to ask the judge permission, but... Under the provisions in sections, I think, 278.93 and 9.4, you have to bring a motion. The complainant has standing right. on the motion. Mm -hmm. The Crown gets access to these records. The complainant's lawyer gets access to these records. So you've lost the entire value, of the entire surprise value of having, um, you know, these messages in your possession if you have to bring this motion. Because you're worried the complainant could tailor his or her evidence to what's in the messages and not be caught off guard. Not only that, but the Crown could also tailor its strategy, right? It's not just a matter of the complainant being ready to answer the questions, but the Crown could prepare its case in a way as well. So it's not mm -hmm. just the complainant having access to it, but it's the Crown as well, something that we usually don't see, this idea of reverse disclosure, the defense having to vet what it's going to do uh, before cross-examining a witness generally. Gotcha. Okay, so I interrupted you. Um, no problem. So you realize you have these records, or you have these messages. You don't know if they'll be defined as records. What do you do from there? What are your options? So, um, I first of all, I had no idea what to do, so I called all my friends <laughs> yeah. in, in the bar. I said, does anyone know what to do with this? And everyone was like, I don't know. Um, some lawyers were of the view that I should be cautious. I don't want to cause a mistrial. I should bring the motion. Others were of the view that I should bring a constitutional challenge right. uh, to these provisions. But a constitutional challenge would have been, I thought, you know, very uh, burdensome. There was already a budget that had been allocated by legal aid. I would have had to apply for a whole new budget. Who knows if they would have granted it in time to do this. There was already Section 11B concerns. It had been his second trial date. Mm. There was all these issues. And, uh, and then um, I actually spoke to... One lawyer who said, well, you know, you should consider maybe getting uh, a ruling in advance. And so I thought about it and I said, well, there's no like real mechanism uh, that's provided for in this in the new uh, provisions of the criminal code to determine whether or not what you have is a record or not. Right. So. Uh, you know, there's, there is always your general arsenal as a defense lawyer of uh, procedural tools that you can have recourse to, and one of those tools is a motion for directions. If you don't know what to do, you ask, ask the court, right? right? And there's also no set procedure for exactly how you bring a motion for directions. So having uh, been on one side of the uh, courtroom where uh, the judge and the crown are <laughs> discussing uh, things and subject matter that I know nothing about. I thought, well, why don't I try to turn that around and ask the judge in the absence of the Crown uh, whether or not uh, he or she believes that these messages attract a reasonable expectation of privacy. So, and I'm going to pause you right there because that's the stroke of genius that I think we want mm -hmm. to 
zero in on. Do you have that idea in the car? Are you in the shower? Are you walking the dog? When does it occur to you that this is like a Garofoli, you've been in this scenario before, but on the flip side? When does that stroke of genius hit? Well, I don't know if I'd call it a stroke of genius, but I would... But you'll take it. I'll take it. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take it. Um, I'm pretty sure it was when I was on the phone with one of the other lawyers who was uh, just talking to me about this. I said, for, sh- for sure there's some way to do this without tipping my hand. Um, and so I think I was just at my desk. Not that like my creative juices are usually flowing at my desk. Usually, <laughs> u- u- usually I'm bored out of my mind at my desk. But um, I thought, you know what? I'm definitely going to just ask the judge to take a look at these messages and not share them uh, with the Crown. But before I did that, actually, I said, well, why don't I just ask the Crown and see if the Crown has a position on whether mm. these kind of messages would normally attract a reasonable expectation of privacy because someone had told me that the, the that MAG, the, the provincial crown in Ontario, had been taking the position since the new provisions had been enacted that uh, they don't attract reasonable expectation of privacy and you don't need to bring one of these 278.9394 uh, motions. But my uh, assigned crown... Uh, responded very quickly that she was of the view that they do attract a reasonable expectation mm-hmm. of privacy and said, gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, and I said, hold on a minute. I'll get back to you by the filing deadline for a bunch of other motions that we had to uh, litigate. And I decided I was not going to gimme, gimme, gimme. And I drafted up, I remember I had brought, I think, five different motions. We had two days scheduled for a bunch of pretrial motions. And as some people in the profession might know, uh, there's nothing I um, love more than on the on the date of a filing deadline, handing over a thick stack of materials <laughs> to my friends uh, to get them working hard if they want to convict my client. So yeah, that's uh, that's what I did. I drafted the motion of directions and uh, off uh, to the races we went. Okay, so just to understand this, you filed the records with the court sealed the way that we would do in a Garofoli, the Crown would do in a Garofoli, so that the Crown didn't get access to them. And then you made submissions knowing what was in the records and asked the Crown to respond in her submissions, I think it is, mm-hmm. um, without knowing the content of the records. So actually what I did was I filed the motion for directions, just a, an application record that did not contain the text messages. Okay. Uh, I asked... Um, um, I asked my process server to make sure that uh, they advised the court staff that I was going to be filing supplementary materials that the Crown was not going to, should not have access to on the day of the hearing. Okay. And I would be filing them in court, and I would ask that they be under seal, and uh, that's what I ended up doing. So on the morning of, and obviously, but here's what I didn't like about having, about doing this. Mm. I still had to disclose that I had messages. Right. Right. I still had to disclose that I had Facebook messages in my possession. In many cases, that in and of itself is going to ruin your shot at a devastating cross-examination. Based on my review of the case, in the preliminary inquiry, the complainant in this case had testified that she didn't know what the Facebook messages said, that she had deleted them, she had blocked my client, she never wanted to see the messages again, so she had deleted them. So at the very least, her evidence at the preliminary inquiry 
was that she didn't know what was in the messages mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, and she couldn't remember what was in the messages. Uh, so it was either that, um, that she was, you know, lying about that or that she, um, didn't want to be candid about the content of the messages. So I was comfortable enough, uh, in this kind of case to tell the crown, well, I, I have the Facebook messages, right? right? But in other cases where the crown doesn't know that there's messages, I don't think I would have brought a motion for directions. I think I would have went straight to the constitutional challenge. Hmm. It would have been a lot more work. And I also don't, I do not recommend this procedure, by the way, uh, for other counsel, uh, unless they are in somewhat similar circumstances. I think we need to litigate the constitutional issue, right? If, you're, if you don't have the funds to litigate the constitutional issue or you have other constraints, then sure, by all means, you can adopt this uh, strategy. Um, or if the constitutional challenge ultimately fails, when it will probably work its way up at least to the Court of Appeal, uh, sure, then we can adopt you know, this motion for directions procedure. Um, but in this particular case, the motion for directions was, was okay. So um, went into court. Uh, the judge had my notice of application that said, I have Facebook messages. And then the question was going to be, Right. How much information am I going to share with the crown about the kind of messages that these are Mm. so that they can make, um, you know, meaningful submissions to the court on whether or not they attract a reasonable expectation of privacy? And what do you think your choices were at that juncture? Well, I was getting some, you know, the court was asking me, well, can you tell this? Can you tell this? Can you tell this? And I was saying, okay, fine, I'll tell you that they're Facebook messages. I'll tell you the date range. I'll tell you that they're only between my client and the complainant. Right. And I'll tell you that they don't engage Section 276 because there's nothing of a sexual nature. Got it. I'll also tell you that they completely impeached the complainant based on what she said at the preliminary inquiry under oath. And that's all I said. And... Um, the court wanted to know if I was willing to disclose other information about, for example, the main topics that had been discussed in the Facebook messages. And I said, no, I, I was not. And at a certain point, the court had to make a decision as to whether or not the Crown was able to make meaningful submissions on the mm-hmm. question of whether or not there was a reasonable expectation of privacy before deciding the issue. You know, after I litigated this, I thought, well, heck, do we even need the Crown's submissions on this point? I mean, why can't this just be an ex parte application brought and let the court decide whether or not there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, I think that's maybe even a possible approach too, of bringing an ex parte motion, just saying I have these Facebook messages, I want a ruling from the court, an ex parte ruling on whether or not I need to bring a motion or not. So I I would encourage actually some counsel, if they're really worried about even disclosing that they have messages to consider, bringing an ex parte motion. Did you have any concern that the Crown would call in counsel for the complainant? Well, the, the, the Crown did call in counsel for the complainant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other motions that were brought at the same time. Uh, I, I initially, you know, uh, I told the Crown, counsel for the complainant should not have access to any of my materials on this motion because the complainant does not yet have standing. Given that I hadn't shared the content of the messages with the Crown yet, uh, I was... I felt relatively secure that counsel for the complainant wouldn't have access to the messages. Right. Um, but uh, ultimately, the court agreed uh, that you know counsel for the complainant didn't have standing on the on the uh, the um, motion for directions. But I wasn't terribly worried at that stage that that the complainant would um, would be alive to 
what was in the messages. Bear in mind, this was, this was a very unique case, extremely serious allegations, right? Knife point rape, broken jaw, what appeared to be an incredibly strong crown case, but both my client and the complainant were street involved, drug addicts, um, very marginalized people, and there were going to be reliability and probably mm-hmm. memory concerns on both, yeah. of, their, both mm-hmm. of their parts. So I actually wasn't, just particularly based on the type of complainant that we had in this case, I wasn't really concerned that she would remember even what the content of the messages were. But I think in most cases, in most sexual assault cases, the complainant may have independent access to these kinds of messages. Mm-hmm. Sure. And bringing this kind of motion could be very dangerous if you don't do it ex parte. Mm. Was the uh, Crown super supportive of your proposed procedure? The Crown was entirely opposed. The Crown uh, was opposed to the court even looking at the messages mm-hmm. without first just ruling that these kind of messages as a category attract a reasonable expectation of privacy and necessitate uh, a motion under 278.93 and 9.4. But I was very fortunate uh, to have a very open-minded jurist who um, was willing to really consider the ramifications of what that would mean if I were to show my hand in terms of, you know, the constitutional right against self-incrimination and the right to silence. Um, and I also had a bit of, you know, I, 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 the approach that I took was I have a bit, um, a bit of an incentive uh, that I can use uh, to the court. And I said, listen, I'm bringing this motion for directions. We can determine whether or not I need to bring a subsequent motion. And if you tell me that I do need to bring a subsequent motion, well, then I'm bringing my constitutional challenge. And that's a whole lot more work than just a motion for directions. So we either adopt this procedure that's reasonable, you know, takes into account judicial economy. This case has been dragging on for a long time. So let's get it done this way. And not only was it practical in this case, I think legally speaking, it was also the right right result. Okay, so I think you've you've kind of tipped your hat hand towards this but um what did the court decide did they follow your procedure and what happened uh court made a brief oral ruling saying yes i agree that i can take a look at the messages uh the it all happened on the record in court obviously the messages weren't read out loud the court looked at my copy of the messages um asked me some questions. Uh, We orally told the Crown, well, you know, these are Facebook messages. These are between these dates. Uh, Section 276 isn't engaged, et cetera. Uh, And then we got into the thick of things. Uh, Really, the heart of the discussion was from a policy perspective. And if you look at sort of some of the analogous Section 8 case law, uh, should and is there a reasonable expectation of privacy in these kinds of messages, in these particular circumstances. Uh, Ultimately, what the judge found was that this kind of analysis is is very Mm case-specific. So there's not going to be a sort of categorical ruling that instant messages don't attract a reasonable expectation of privacy, or they do attract a reasonable expectation of privacy. And you can imagine scenarios where instant messaging Um, instant messages do attract a reasonable expectation of privacy and particularly if there's an intersection between um, private messaging and section 276 if they are um, what you know if they are sexts as opposed to just texts Mm -hmm. right right Uh, beyond the procedure that you used were there any other significant holdings that arise from this decision um 
I don't know if there are significant holdings beyond uh, the procedure being adopted and what the factors are that you look at when determining whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. This decision came on the heels of another decision uh, by Justice Chapman of the Ontario Court mm -hmm. of Justice called MS, which uh, ironically enough, uh, prior counsel on my case was counsel on. Right. Um, and there was a different result on that. Thankfully, it wasn't binding on Justice Davis. And I think there's like a 16-factor test in MS that I, I said was a little bit unworkable. What what Justice Davis decided to uh, look at uh, are sort of the content of the messages, the manner in which the messages were in the defense's uh, were found to be in the defense's possession who has control over them, uh, the nature of, of the relationship between um, between the complainant and the defendant, and the policy implications of finding that the complainant would have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So I think looking at th those four factors, I think that is a significant holding that to determine whether or not there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, you have to uh, look at uh, factors that we... Um, that are, I mean, these are also, these are kind of new factors in a sense, mm -hmm. but they also draw on generally the Section 8 uh, jurisprudence. Right. Um, and it was also held in, the, in your case that reasonable expectation of privacy, you need to be looking at the point in time of the hearing, not looking back to the expectation of privacy at the time the message was sent, right? Y yes, and that, that's important because if you, if you look at the definition of record in 278.1, I hate to get super technical on this, <laughs> but... Uh, the definition is any form of record that contains personal information for which there is a reasonable expectation right. of privacy, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that at <clears throat> one point in time there may have been a reasonable expectation of privacy or there was a reasonable expectation of privacy or ever has been or could be. It's at the time of trial. Is there still a reasonable expectation of privacy in these messages? Because you could also imagine other intervening events that could affect that. What if between the time the messages were sent and the time of trial when it's litigated, the complainant herself had shared copies of these messages with a bunch of other people? Right. Potentially, you know, implicating, you know, theories of abandonment or relinquishing a reasonable expectation of privacy, so on and so forth. So you and also people's relationship generally when they're um, antagonistic in a criminal proceeding uh, is very different than at a time that they're uh, texting in a friendly way or sexting or anything. So uh, right. that also uh, impacts whether or not uh, you got to bring a, a motion. What advice do you have for counsel who find themselves facing a challenging issue where there is no clear precedent for how to proceed? Uh, pick up the phone, <laughs> call your colleagues, right? right? That's the number one thing that helped me in this case. I was calling everyone high and low <laughs> uh, and acro really across the country because there were mixed um, decisions from, uh, from different jurisdictions. Uh, so get ideas from your uh, friends, uh, from your colleagues. Hopefully your colleagues are your friends. Um, and, well, I know you are, Lisa, and you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um And always, you know, try to have a uh, big picture view of, uh, of the case. And if you can, to try to have a big picture view of sort of criminal law and criminal procedure generally. Right. And try to incorporate... Um, notions that you know judges are used to applying and legal principles that judges are used to applying and are comfortable applying if you have a novel situation. That's great advice. Anything else? Oh, no, well, thanks so good. much for coming in, Sharif. Awesome. We really appreciate your Dan, time. Thank you guys so much for having me.
Crown Prosecutor Jill Whitkin and defense lawyer Daniel Brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, Second Edition. This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the criminal code brought upon by bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennen, contributions from Cecilia Hageman, Megan Cunningham, Don Way, Adam Weisberg, and Colleen McEwen. To learn more and order your copy today, visit emon.ca slash LLP SO2. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emond.ca slash LLP SO2 and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. Okay, it's time for the update where we look at current decisions from the Courts of Appeal across the province and tell you how they relate to your practice today. So we've got prior consistent statements. 2019-2020 may go down as the year the prior consistent statement error was successful at the Ontario Court of Appeal. We saw in uh, at least three cases that ground of appeal uh, earn new trials for three different appellants. And the lesson uh, of these cases is really the one that you learned in law school. Prior consistent statements remain inadmissible, people. You cannot enter them willy-nilly, and every Crown attorney listening to this uh, knows that. Uh, There are exceptions. The exceptions, the the most common exceptions are to rebut allegations of recent fabrication, the narrative exception, and the circumstantial evidence exception. If you want to enter a prior consistent statement, you need to be able to articulate to your trial judge the reason for its admission, the basis for its admission, and and how you intend it to be relied upon, what inferences you'll be asking for at the end of the day. Uh, These issues should be litigated in advance. It doesn't have to be a lengthy voir dire, but there ought to be an outing of the issue, a litigating of it, and a ruling. Uh, That's been made very clear in the the cases before the Ontario Court of Appeal, DK 2020-79, SK uh, 2020-34, DC 2019-442, where um, either the admission was uh, incorrect or the uh, instruction to the jury was incorrect uh, or the judge flatly relied upon it for the wrong reasons. It's really foundational stuff. It's important to to remember. And my kind of advocacy tip coming out of these cases is it's important to have conversations with uh, the Crown attorney. Uh, the Crown should have conversations uh, with the defense about these issues before the trial gets off and running uh, so that everyone knows where 
the other stands and there can be some some clarity on um, how these things pan out, which will ultimately make for for better appellate records. The other interesting case uh, on this issue uh, for defense counsel is the SK case, SK 2019 ONCA-776, where it was a prior consistent statement that the defense wanted admitted uh, on the basis that the Crown had raised recent fabrication in the cross-examination of the accused. Fascinating case, really worth a read. In particular, uh, worth reviewing Justice Tullock's uh, concurring opinion uh, where there was some disagreement with whether or not that was the case, whether the Crown had, in fact, uh, uh, raised recent fabrication in the course of the cross-examination and whether that was an appropriate basis for the admission of the prior consistent statement. Um, a fascinating and heartbreaking case um, that was a, a newsworthy uh, some years ago. It is the case of Officer Stiles, who was killed uh, in uh, a, an accident involving a Dodge Caravan, and SK was the accused who was tried for his murder uh, and is a uh, paraplegic. So uh, terrible, heartbreaking facts, fascinating legal issue, uh, worth your read, and worth remembering these foundational key everyday concepts uh, in your practice Prior consistent statements are inadmissible. A big thank you to Emily Lamb, Anthony Morgan, and Sharif Foda for joining us in the lounge today. We'll see you next time. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Danan Hawes. And marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like The Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. 